Welcome back to The Jacob Wolf Show, episode six. For those of you watching live, we are getting started a bit late today, about an hour and a half late. That's because there was a power outage in my area, affected about 6,000 homes in the area. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like a truck drove off the road, uh, knocked over a power pole. Somebody was working on the power pole. They were killed, it looks like. So uh, we're starting late, but we're having a better day than the... Uh, lineman who was who was fried it sounds like he was uh, killed and the power has now come back i wanted to just give it a little bit of a grace period because the power had come back a few times but then cut back out within a few minutes it's been going now for about a half hour and i think it's going to remain running here throughout the show let's keep our fingers crossed uh, a lot to discuss today on the podcast a lot of news. We're going to get into all of it. If you're wondering if I'm going to cover that story, well, the answer is most likely yes in today's episode. And of course, uh, you all saw what played out over the weekend in Martha's Vineyard. DeSantis buses in a bunch of illegal aliens, a bunch of illegals show up off of a couple of buses into Martha's Vineyard. Uh, the liberals of Martha's Vineyard, I believe Martha's Vineyard is about 80 to 90% Democrat voters. They are apoplectic. They're losing their minds. And within 48 hours, the illegals were uh, rounded up, basically, and pulled out of there by the Massachusetts uh, National Guard. They came in, they rounded up the illegals, they deported them. And you just think about if such a thing had happened ever during the Trump administration. Remember the outrage over the concept of putting troops on the U.S. border? Do you recall the moral outrage that existed? during the Trump administration at any suggestion whatsoever that the National Guard be used? Do you recall uh, the outrage over the suggestion that the National Guard be mobilized to deal with the nationwide riots that were taking place, the riots that were on a scale that makes January 6th look like nothing? Do you recall all of that? 2020, the White House is under siege, 50-plus uh, Secret Service agents injured, many of them hit in the head with bricks that were being thrown and cans of soup, and Trump was convinced not to deploy armed military throughout the country to restore order. A big mistake, if you ask me, because of course he ran as a law and order candidate. But it's, it's pretty fair to say that the showing from the people of Martha's Vineyard was an impressive one. And you do run into this phenomenon where the right says, well, the left are a bunch of hypocrites. We're going to point out their hypocrisy. Well, okay, they don't care. The only problem with pointing out the left's hypocrisy is that the left simply doesn't care if you point out their hypocrisy. They don't care. It's, it's not relevant to them whether you've pointed out that they are hypocrites or not. It's not something that concerns the left, whether you think they're hypocrites or not, whether they look like hypocrites or not. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference to the left wing in this country whether you have exposed them as hypocrites. What matters to them is the net effects of their policies. What matters to them is what actually comes out of what they do, the consequences of what they do, and whether or not those consequences benefit them and benefit their constituencies. That's what matters. That's what matters to the left wing in this country. And so you say, well, should the right uh, spend time on policies or on moves or on stunts that, that bring out the left's hypocrisy? I would argue that you have to do some of that, but Really, no. I mean, it doesn't have much effect on anything to point out that they are hypocrites. What does it achieve? Okay, you've made the people of Martha's Vineyard, and this is a summertime crowd, so you have to remember 
Uh, it is still kind of late summer up there. So many of the people that are in Martha's Vineyard do not live there full time. It is really a, a vacation hub. I, I, know, I know one guy that vacations there with his family. I don't know many. I know one. Um, and they go up there temporarily, whether they rent houses, whether they own them. Uh, they don't spend the whole year up there on that island. It's a vacation spot. But they rousted those people. They rousted them in a hurry. And they don't care that they look like hypocrites uh, by doing so. That is not something of, of great concern or of great import to the people of Martha's Vineyard. And what the right should do is rather than pointing out the left look like hypocrites by deporting these people from Martha's Vineyard, what they should instead do is they should say, bravo, good job. The right should be asking Martha's Vineyard, they should be asking the uh, governor of Massachusetts uh, to give them lessons on how to carry out deportations quickly and unforgivingly. Now, before anybody corrects me, uh, it is not clear precisely what has happened to these people. They were rounded up by the National Guard. They were moved to a joint military base in the area for deportation. Whether or not they have been put on the plane yet and shipped out of the country, I can't say. Nobody can. I don't think that information is available out there. So we're going here, and uh, I would say that you know that, that this is a win for Martha's Vineyard. They got rid of the illegals. DeSantis pointed out that the left doesn't like illegal immigration in their area. Well, yeah, obviously. But this is a matter of the entire Northeast of this country. And I would say, for that matter, parts of the Midwest of this country, they don't have a concept of the illegal immigration issue. They just don't. Uh, I went to some very, very nice public schools in Southern California growing up. Very nice public schools. Uh, I got a tremendous education, I would say. I would say that the vast majority of my teachers were uh, very much into what they did. I mean, I had an AP computer science uh, teacher in high school. I graduated early from high school, and uh, he, this is my junior year, my, my sort of final year, I, I guess half a year, graduated about a year and a half early. And I mean, this guy, Mr. Lusher, boy, could he program computers. I mean, he really knew computer science, and he just kind of wanted to share it with us students. I mean, that was kind of the thing. Of course, there were the bare minimum teachers, but in second grade, we had a big shipment of illegals show up that year. They had to be brought into a school someplace. They were. And so in my second grade class, there were two groups. Basically, we had two classes. Thank God the teacher spoke fluent Spanish. We had the Eagles and the Foxes. And the Eagles were the half of the class, or a little bit less than half the class who could speak English. And the, and the Fox, uh, they could not. They only knew how to speak Spanish. They spoke zero English. But one thing I will point out is that back then, and I remember this very keenly. If your name was, uh, if your name was uh, Jose, you were Josh. If your name was Juan, you were John. Um, you, you took on your, your American name. Uh, if you were Jesus, they still called you Jesus. I mean, they, they didn't because Jesus, that was kind of, it, it just, it's not an American name typically. So you got your American name. And, and it wasn't a racist thing. It's not like, oh, we hate Hispanics. Let's call them some other name. That wasn't what it was about at all. This Hispanic teacher of mine knew it was best for these kids to assimilate. And, and that's just how, it, I mean, this is not that long ago. I'm only 24 years old. This is when I was in second grade. This isn't even 20 years ago. You took on an American name. We had a, a couple of Indian kids with really uh, wild uh, names. They were given Americanized names, and they liked it, and everyone liked it. It wasn't some racist, oppressive thing. It's the opposite. So 
Now, the Chinese still do this. Somebody points this out in the chat here. Chinese still do this. So the Chinese will have names that you have no hope in ever pronouncing. And so they'll take on an American name and they just do it by choice. So their name might be, you know, Zhao Lin, and they say, no, my name's Sophia. My name's Diana. My name's uh, Jenny. And, and they just do that on their own because it just makes sense. Why, why would you not want to have a name that people in that country can pronounce? Makes no sense. Uh, so anyway, that, that shows you where this immigration issue has gone. Uh, the people of Martha's Vineyard had an admirable effort rousting these illegal aliens from their community. And uh, other cities in the Northeast are, are doing the same. They're doing the same. And by the way, I might add, uh, a story that didn't make nearly as much news in the last week is that Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, he went through and he is now shipping thousands of illegals that want out of New York City down to Florida. So DeSantis may have shipped a few hundred up north, but he's getting thousands in return. Thousands. And there will be no criticism of the mayor of New York for doing this. None. So that's what's happening on the immigration front. I want to get to some, some other breaking news here. And I go first to uh, what played out over the weekend on 60 Minutes. Now, this interview was actually conducted, I think, early last week. I believe it was conducted early last week, but it aired in full on Sunday. I watched the whole thing. And the biggest takeaway was this uh, clip on Taiwan. Listen to what uh, Joe Biden says here regarding Taiwan. What should Chinese President Xi know about your commitment to Taiwan? We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago. And that there's a one China policy and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving. We're not encouraging their being independent. We're not let that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes. If, in fact, there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview of White House. Now, I have to say this. I'm, I'm pausing in the middle of this and I'm going to I'm going to rewind and play that again. This is the weakness of 60 Minutes is this editing uh, that they do, the over editing of this show. And they use it a lot of times to hit Trump. They use it to make other people look bad all the time. They rarely do it to make anyone look better than they are. Now, I understand it's, it's, a, it's a news magazine show, and it's been the most successful news program on the air for a long time, uh, airing every Sunday for the last, God, 50 some odd years, I think, in the US. But I'll tell you, I really enjoy the way that Charlie Rose interviews people because you sit down at a table, it's live to tape, they roll through. There's not a bunch of editing like this. And, and it's, you know, sure, you can insert B-roll, you can uh, do more interesting things, you can, you know, cut to you walking through the car show with the president or what you, whatever you want to do, but you don't cut in and after a, an answer like this in the middle of the damn thing. It's very bad. Now, it's possible that 60 Minutes did this to make Biden look better. Maybe he fumbled after this. Maybe he started mixing up his words. That's very much possible. They, they had no intention, I would think, of making Biden look bad, but that's what they did. Now, I'm going to roll back a few seconds here. We'll play this. Independence. We are not moving. We're not encouraging them being independent. We're not. Let, that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces would defend Taiwan. But the commander-in-chief had a view of his own. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. Biden says yes. And that is uh, 
remarkable. It, it, is a, it is a change from the U.S.'s general policy. Now, I'm going to give you just a quick summary here to understand what the policy is and why and what it has been. Of course, there was a tremendous civil war in China between Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek, Mao Zedong, of course, being the communist. And the civil war played out. Basically, Chiang Kai-shek's forces were forced to retreat to the island of Taiwan. The island of Taiwan, according to themselves, and for the longest time, basically beginning when this happened, became known as the Republic of China. And China, as we think of it, mainland China, was the PRC, the People's Republic of China. That was how things existed, and the U.S. very much overtly supported the Republic of China, the non-communists. But as time goes on, you look at the size of mainland China, the number of people, the potential for that place to turn into something that is significant on the global stage. I mean, you, you imagine how large that country is, how, what their history is as far as the development of gunpowder, uh, global trade, the Silk Road, all of this throughout history, and the fact that it had regressed because of Mao's takeover, the killing of anybody, the killing of doctors, the killing of anybody who had a degree, the killing of anyone intellectual, the mobilizing of the youth, kind of like what the left attempted in 2020 in the US with the riots that took place here, of course, in China on a much larger scale, much more targeted, the Little Red Book, all of that. Well, there's a lot of potential in China. Richard Nixon's administration, uh, led by Henry Kissinger, say, well, you know, look, we aren't, we're only going to do so much trading with little Taiwan. I mean, they make great toy soldiers. Uh, they seem to be good at making these computer things. Of course, the microprocessor didn't really exist at this point, it's not at any large scale anyway. <clears throat> and so we change our mind. We basically flip. Richard Nixon opens up China. And our policy on Taiwan is that China says it's a one China policy, but they're going to kind of leave Taiwan out of it. And we're going to have the policy of strategic ambiguity. That is what this policy is called strategic ambiguity. So we're going to be ambiguous as to what we will do if China moves in. We may do something, we may not. That has been the official U.S. policy for a long time. It has transcended administrations. It has moved from one administration to the next. And it has been a policy which has become even more pronounced as you had basically sort of in the late 90s to early 2000s, China shift from a country which was pretty good at manufacturing wrenches and tools and pliers and toys to a country which manufactures a tremendous number of microprocessors, a tremendous amount of industrial equipment, a huge, huge sum of important parts when it comes to our country's ability to put out an automobile. You think we make cars in this country? We do. But we cannot make cars in this country. We cannot get a single automobile to roll off the lot without China's cooperation. We can't. We don't have the chip fabrication here in the, in, in the United States. It doesn't exist. And Taiwan, of course, is a leader in chips. They make better chips than China does. They've always been more precise when it comes to making chips. The Japanese are too old to keep up the production of chips that they had, say, in the 80s and 90s. They continue to regress. I mean, the Japanese make tremendous quality electronics. I mean, you look at the equipment I've got just here on my desk, and, and I come uh, 7300 uh, HF radio. I mean, I mean, the thing is just tremendous quality. It feels like a, a military grade piece of equipment. 
China makes nothing like it. So this is the state of, of being. And the United States says that we're going to have strategic ambiguity. That is the policy. And now Biden, for the second or third time during his administration, says non-ambiguously, we would defend Taiwan with United States souls, with the United States military. Now, why would he do this? Is it a total accident? Is it a slip of the tongue for the third time? Could that be the case? Now, you have to understand something. You see on the camera here, uh, Scott Pelley, and you see Joe Biden. And you think Scott Pelley spoke to Joe Biden for 60 minutes. But of course, there are probably eight to 10, or maybe as, as many as 15 people there in that room from 60 minutes, makeup artists to lighting people, grips, uh, camera operators, assistant camera operators, etc. You have a number of, of people in the room from their side. And you also have a number of White House aides there with Biden, possibly the White House chief of staff, certainly junior aides. So it's not as though Biden can slip up something and they can't get him to say, hey, hey, correct that real quick, Joe, and, and he would. That's important for you to understand. Well, the White House came out after Biden said this, and they said, well, uh, our policy remains the same. That's what the White House says. So is this a sort of confusion policy? Is it what Trump tried to do with North Korea? Is there a reason for it? Is, is there an imminent threat to Taiwan because of what has happened to Ukraine? I mean, as much as Russia has been able to bend Europe over the barrel with energy prices, and, and I've talked about how that is going to crack this Western alliance very soon, China could uh, very quickly cause the United States to fold by not sending in uh, equipment to the United States, not sending in chips, not sending in all of the products that they produce. That could happen in a hurry. It could certainly happen in a hurry, and it would be much more meaningful than anything Russia has been able to do in response to our sanctions on them. Much more meaningful indeed. Now, we spoke about, I recall, this was on one of the last shows uh, that I did on Censored.tv. The old show was Man Up with Jacob Wool. That ran for two plus years. Never missed an episode. Never missing an episode here either, uh, unless you know fate intervenes and I'm in a car accident or something. Many of you were worried about me today because we started late, and I appreciate that, of course, uh, really. And I was very close to just basically grabbing the equipment and doing this whole show off-site, but uh, thankfully the power came back here. Now, th there has to be some reason that Biden makes this departure in a major interview like this that he knows the Chinese are going to see, that he knows is going to reverberate around the world. We don't know precisely what that is, but on one of the final shows, we talked about these war games that took place in D.C. at a major think tank that receives a lot of DOD money concerning would the U.S. be able to uh, defend Taiwan. And for that simulation, it takes place in the year 2026. There's a big Wall Street Journal article on this. And the answer that they came to, and, and remember, this is a simulation. It involves literally rolling a 20-sided uh, die, I guess a dodecahedron that would be. So they introduce uh, randomness into the mix with dice rolling and the like. The answer was yes. The answer was yes, the U.S. could do that. But we would lose 30, 40, 50,000 troops. We would lose two or three aircraft carriers. I mean, it would be a significant cost uh, for the United States. The kind of bloody, conventional, major powers warfare that the United States has not seen since the Korean War. That would be the last time that the U.S. Had, has seen that kind of major powers warfare, ironically, against the Chinese and the North Koreans. Chinese were heavily involved. Soviets were involved to a small degree with, uh, in the air war. The answer was yes, but the answer was at great cost. And so 
Biden has now committed U.S. men and women, committed their lives to defending Taiwan, to defending basically a, a little island with some chip factories in it. The American people never voted for that. The American people never had a say in that. The commander in chief has now committed U.S. lives to this. Now, the question comes down to would we actually? And I think the answer is no. I think the answer is obviously no. First of all, there are real challenges in terms of even being able to mobilize that. Chinese would sweep across, it would look like a drill, it would be for real. And, and, and I think the US would have a very hard time catching up. So that has now happened. And it, and it comes down to you know, one assumption that was made in this clip. And I want to play just one stretch of this clip one last time here uh, so that you can get a sense for one topic we need to discuss here within this. And, and here we go. Oh, let's see here. What China policy and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence? We are not moving, we're not encouraging their being independent. So Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. You see, this is really a, a striking quote from Joe Biden. He says, we're going to provide the guarantee of military intervention, the guarantee of U.S. lives being lost, tens of thousands, against a nuclear-armed China. And we're going to do that. And yet, when it comes to Taiwan seeking independence, that's up to them. So our uh, guarantees to Taiwan as far as their security, the promise of spending U.S. blood and U.S. treasure in the defense of their island, it doesn't come with any conditions. It's just like, well, do whatever you want. And uh, if you go start a fight with that guy who's six times your size, uh, we have to intervene to stop it. Really? And it's more than six times their size, of course, but it's like in a bar. It's like you provide a security guarantee you know, to your girlfriend and then she goes and somehow starts a fight with eight dudes. It's like that security guarantee comes with some understanding that she or he or whoever we're talking about in the relationship is not going to go and do something terribly dumb. It's really something. Of course, I don't think Taiwan would want to do something which would lead their island to being so epically destroyed by the Chinese, but maybe they would. We're not let that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces would defend Taiwan. But the commander-in-chief had a view of his own. So unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. Yes. Okay, now I want to hit on this last part here. He says, unlike Ukraine. Scott Pelley on 60 Minutes says, unlike Ukraine, he, he implies that U.S. men and women haven't defended Ukraine. Well, first of all, there have been contractors who have lost their lives. Most of these people were contracted by the CIA to go over there, do certain security details, mostly personal protective details of U.S. personnel that are in the region, things like that, and they have died. You look up Marine killed in Ukraine. It has happened. There's little detail that's been revealed. Many of these contracts are classified. You're not going to learn anything about them probably for many years to come, if ever. And second of all, U.S. forces have been committed to Ukraine. Uh, the, it's, I believe it's the uh, second uh, sustainment. Is it the second sustainment brigade or is this? No, it's a second sustainment uh, division. Second sustainment. is It's a unit in the U.S. Army. They do logistics. They were on the ground in Ukraine. I spoke to members of them who were on the ground in Ukraine. Several members of uh, that part of the U.S. Army sent me 
definitive proof that they were in Ukraine, pictures with street signs, not Photoshop, real deal stuff, okay? They were in Ukraine on the ground, and I reported that first on this show back when it was uncensored under the name of Man Up. But that's not all. Uh, You recall this report from the New York Times. Commando Network coordinates flow of weapons in Ukraine, officials say. Commando Network coordinates flow of weapons in Ukraine, officials say. It says a secretive operation involving U.S. special operations forces hints at the scale of the effort to assist Ukraine's still outgunned military. Now, I want to really parse this headline. Special operations forces, not special forces. Now, a lot of times the media who don't know what they're talking about, they use these terms interchangeably, special forces and special operations. Special forces in the context of the U.S. military, now it can be different overseas, implies basically Green Berets uh, or uh, operational detachment alphas as they were mostly known in the global war on terror, Green Berets. And basically what they do is they train people. They go into very dangerous uh, parts of the world, they train people, and that training includes going on operations with them. So, so of course, special forces have been involved in, in epic gunfights all around the world, epic gunfights, epic battles. But that's special forces. This says special operations. Special operations are uh, different. That would be, for example, uh, the Navy SEALs. That would be uh, the Army Rangers. That would be really their tier one components, uh, SEAL Team 6, which is not called that anymore. It's called Naval Special Warfare Development Group. And uh, Delta Force, which isn't called that any longer. It's referred to as Combat Applications Group, at least the last time I checked. It would imply that they are involved. Now, their general role is not to train people. Uh, they don't typically come to bear with the language skills that would be at the disposal of special forces. And so when you hear that special operations forces are on the ground in Ukraine, that implies that they are doing kinetic operations. They're doing intelligence gathering. They're doing targeting. What kind of targeting might they be doing? It doesn't get into this in this article. But you notice here, it says officials say, so U.S. officials are bragging about this. Why would they do that? If you're going to send in U.S. special operations to Ukraine, why would you then brag about it? Now, initially, they did some embassy defense, but these are other things. This is after the the Kiev embassy was evacuated by the U.S. You go here. U.S. intelligence is helping Ukraine kill Russian generals, officials say. Now, think about how provocative this is. Again, it's officials say, again, a report in the New York Times. This isn't uh, something that was leaked to some uh, off-brand blog. This is the New York Times here. So the U.S. intelligence Uh, community was helping target and kill U.S. generals, helping the Ukrainians kill, uh, rather here, Russian generals in Ukraine. Think about that. Think about the the level of provocation. I mean, imagine, you you will probably recall that fake story that was run in 2020 about Russian bounties on the head of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, and how the media used that to basically tar and feather Trump and say that he's not tough enough on Putin. The old Trump-Russia nonsense. It was another permutation of that. And you, thought, you think about how provocative that is. And th- that, those were just U.S. troops. Now imagine if it were the case that Russia were targeting uh, U.S. generals, not just any old troops in Afghanistan. And imagine if they were doing it by hand on the ground, not just offering bounties. And imagine if they then publicly bragged about it. Imagine the level of provocation. That's not it. We have another report out. Uh, U.S. intel helped sink Russian flagship Moskva, officials say. You remember this uh, Russian Black Sea flagship that uh, went to the bottom of the ocean? Well, U.S. intel helped the Ukrainians sink it 
they used British missiles, I believe, to do it. But U.S. intel helped them target that ship, presumably with satellite imagery. Uh, who knows? So you think about the, the, the level of provocation. And again, you have officials uh, off the record, anonymous officials of the intel community bragging about this. They don't later dispute these reports, by the way. So they let these reports go out. They don't dispute them. The U.S. has been significantly involved in Ukraine on the ground. That is something very important for you to understand. U.S. warfighters are currently on the ground in Ukraine. They have been on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, some of them have been injured. Some may have been killed. CIA personnel have been killed on the ground in this Russia-Ukraine proxy war, which is increasingly not a proxy war. Everything the U.S. has done along the way has been escalatory with Russia, not de-escalatory. And I'm not saying that the Russians have not escalated themselves. Of course they have. But all Biden had to do, and by all appearances, all he had to do, we don't know for sure, but it would appear that what Biden had to do was guarantee that, that Ukraine would not enter NATO, which was a longstanding guarantee going back that was unfortunately not penned to paper the way that it should have been at the time. So yes, there have absolutely been U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine. And you have to think about this whole concept that, you know, uh, we will provide security guarantees to just about any old country in exchange for nothing. There's no mutual guarantee. They don't provide any security guarantee to us, nor could they if they wanted to. But then when it comes to, for example, whether or not they will declare their independence or whether or not they will uh, annex this part of the country or that part of the country next door, that's just up to them. And, and our guarantee of their security does not at any point cease to exist if they do something that is completely unhinged and provocative. That is a terrible terrible way to go about doing things. It's, it's unbelievable that that is the U.S. policy, that that is the way the U.S. is approaching all of this, but it seems to be the case. And of course, if you talk about defending Taiwan against China, that would presumably mostly be a naval type of warfare. It would come at terrible cost. The Chinese have really incredible anti-ship missiles that can fly low below, uh, below radar, right above the water, as low as, uh, in some cases, five or 10 meters off the water. And they'll launch 20 of them at each ship, and we will lose aircraft carriers if such a day ever comes. Let's hope it doesn't come. I hope it doesn't. This is basically the only, the only people that would benefit from all of this is the military-industrial complex. And I, I suppose um, lobbyists like me would benefit to a small degree being lobbyists for the military-industrial complex, although we would, we would lose on so many other clients that we'd lose net-net. I mean, you, you, you can't win. Basically, you can only win as a, as a defense contractor and as a certain member of the political establishment who the defense contractors, Lockheed, Boeing, General Dynamics, etc., cetera, uh, Raytheon, put into office and prop up. I want to talk about the economy here. Many of you come here for my economic breakdowns, and so I'm going to get into some of that now. You have uh, a report out. Uh, in the last week here. This is uh, Barry Sternlicht. He's a guy that I have followed over the years, and he has come out now and, and said that the economy is breaking hard. Uh, billionaire investor warns aggressive Fed is causing, quote, cracks everywhere, unquote. Uh, this is a report from Zero Hedge kind of summing up his interview on CNBC. Uh, it says here, echoing Jim Cramer's infamous 2007, they know nothing rant. And if you've never seen that, it's, it's, it's worth a watch. Uh, a far more calm and eloquent Barry Sternlicht, chairman and CEO of Starwood Capital. This, these guys do the hotels. They own the W Hotels. 
they own a lot of different hotel chains and they're involved in apartment buildings. Uh, very significant uh, player. And they certainly have their thumb on the pulse of, of various parts of the economy. It says here, Barry Stern, like chairman and CEO of Starward Capital, warned the co-anchors on CNBC this morning uh, that if the Fed doesn't pump the brakes on its rate hikes, the U.S. economy is facing a serious downturn. The economy is breaking hard, Sternlicht told the outlet. If the Fed keeps this up, they're going to have a serious recession and people will lose their jobs. He was proved right very quickly as the Atlanta Fed cut its GDP forecast for Q3 to just plus 0.05%. So they predict that the economy will grow 0.05%. This is after the economy contracting in Q2. This is a uh, prediction out of the Atlanta Fed. The billionaire investor uh, clammed the Fed for being late to the inflation-fighting game, exclaiming how ridiculous and obvious so many aspects of the market have been in recent years under the Fed's heavy hand, and is now overdoing it. This is the steepest increase in rates in history, especially since Volcker, uh, but the background of the country today is so different than when Volcker was chairman, he said. Consumer confidence is terrible, and CEO confidence is miserable, Sternlick said, and highlighted the fact that the Fed is relying on old data to make its decision. The CPI, the data that they are looking at, is old data. All they have to do is call Doug McMillan at Walmart, call the real estate fellows, and ask what is happening to our apartment rents. He said, pointing out the rate of rent growth is now slowing. So this is one problem. We talked about last week how the CPI is, is literally done by hand. They send out thousands of surveyors to grocery stores, to other stores uh, with you know basically uh, iPads, and they survey the prices of random things. Why don't they get the payment data from Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, all the payment processors, Stripe, and port it in and get real-time visibility? Well, it's too hard. They can't hire people that can do that for one thing. They'd have to basically have Fed contractors to do something like that. The government can't do that, but that's one reason. But it would be much more accurate than CPI. And of course, then people would say, wait a second, if you have this much more accurate data rather than CPI, why isn't my social security indexed to that? It's more accurate. And then the government would have to say, well, I guess they're right. We have to pay more. So there, there's a lot of reasons why the Fed doesn't do uh, more accurate measurements of inflation. He continued here, 500,000 single-family home sales, new sales, is the lowest since 1952. We are going to have a major crash in the housing market, and housing prices are going down. You are seeing housing prices correct. Uh, Sternlich concluded the Fed is attacking the economy with a sledgehammer, and they don't need to. As for when the serious recession will hit, Sternlich believes it is imminent. I think in the fourth quarter, I think right now, he said. You are going to see cracks everywhere. Meanwhile, the FedEx uh, CEO, he was out last week. He said, we are going into a worldwide recession. Numbers don't portend very well. And this is the whole thing that I, that I have said about the Fed's movement, their approach to this, the government's approach to this. The, the, the federal government overspent. The fiscal policy was too loose in the beginning of 2021. I said it at the time. Other people said it at the time. They pressed on the gas pedal anyway. The inflation kicked in a year year and a half later. That's what you're seeing now. But here's the question. Is it better for consumers to contend with 7%, 8%, 9%, maybe 10% inflation? Or is it better for consumers to not have a job? I mean, I, I know for myself, I would, I would be much more uh, apt to be able to manage around the price of everything going up 10% or, or even 20% than I would uh, be able to contend with my income going to zero. And I know most Americans are the same way. 
you would much you would have a much easier time uh, dealing with 10% inflation, 12% inflation than you would have uh, dealing with not having a job, dealing with the value of your house going down 50%, dealing with uh, your bank going under and having to file an FDIC insurance claim when your money disappears, dealing with the value of any stock holdings you have going down massively. I mean, I looked, just looking at the charts recently, I'm not somebody who's actively uh, trading in the market. It's not my game. Don't have time for it. Don't have the focus to dedicate to that, nor the capital to make it worth it. So, but you look at the, these charts and it's like everything's down. REITs are down. Bonds are down. I mean, the, the government bonds are just, it's been a bloodbath. Worse than the stock market. Stocks are basically down. The, the only way you could have really made money is if you had bought energy and, and this is a big and, been able to survive the volatility and not sell out. Because if you had bought the energy sector, basically pick any energy ETF. I, I picked the iShares one, I think. I looked at the data. If you bought that, you are up 29% year to date if that's all you held, but you would have had to survive a 26% max drawdown. Most people can't do that. They bail out. They say, oh, it's, I'm going to lose all my money. I've got to get off the table. So you would have had to survive that kind of volatility in the process. So the market's been hell for just about anybody. Crypto's down, way down, obviously. Massive crash. Stable coins blew up completely. They're gone totally. They completely evaporated, many of them, most of them. Uh, crypto institutions went completely under Celsius and uh, others involved in that space, many others, too many to name. So you think about all of that, all in the name of what, uh, getting the price of gas down a little bit, or uh, which CPI doesn't even count, or, or getting people's rent not to go up too, too much, or making sure that you don't have 10% increases in the price of beef. I mean, paying 10% more for beef, maybe eat chicken one night a week instead of beef much easier to contend with than it is to contend with crashing the entire economy. It has never made any sense. It has never made any sense. You know, I, I, I think it is uh, remarkable that, that they have forsaken the health and stability of the United States economy for uh, an inflation number going down a few ticks. And, and, that, and frankly, that hasn't even worked. That's the other part, is that they haven't really brought inflation in. Gas has gone down a little bit, at least here in the U.S., because Biden liquidated the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but it, it hasn't worked. It's hurt the economy and it hasn't worked. And you think about how, you know, you see people on Twitter these days gloating, oh, I'm glad, I, I'm sure glad I refinanced last year, they say at 2.75% uh, or a year and a half ago at, at 3%. I'm, I'm happy. My mortgage would be 6.15% today. I'm glad I refinanced at this percentage or, or what have you. It's like, good for you. But here's the other side of that. You got a 30-year fixed at 3%. Now a 30-year fixed is 6%. Somebody's holding on to that paper. You know, your, your debt is someone else's asset. And the value of that paper has gone down massively. So you, know, you won, but on the other side of that trade, someone else lost. I'm not saying to feel bad about it. What I'm saying is you have a significant drawdown in the value of mortgage-backed securities. That has been the case this year too. So you may have saved a little bit of money on your mortgage payment each month. And in the meantime, uh, the decrease in the value of mortgage-backed securities, which maybe you don't think is important. Maybe you don't hold directly mortgage-backed security paper or a mortgage-backed security ETF. You probably don't. But contained within your money market fund, contained within your pension, contained within the balance sheets of the other stocks you do own are tons of mortgage-backed securities. And those go down and other asset prices go down with them. 
So there's almost nobody, by the way, who, who refinanced their mortgage last year at 3% and is up net net. Now, those other prices would have gone down anyway. It's not as though they could have had that precise trade-off. Good for you, again, if you did that. But it's important to acknowledge that you know, the value of that paper now decreasing with interest rates up is significant and, and plays out through the rest of the economy. It's not a free lunch. And it's kind of what happened to, say, uh, Washington Mutual. I saw an interview with their CEO uh, last week before they went under. They were holding a bunch of paper that paid you know, five, and all of a sudden, par meant that it paid nine or more. And so all of a sudden, that wasn't paper worth holding. They have to mark to market their balance sheet. And all of a sudden, their company's not worth much, but they have loans against the value of the company, et cetera. So they have really, really jacked up the economy in the name of fighting inflation. It's, it's been a foolish endeavor. It wasn't ever going to work. I said this from the beginning. I said, what makes the Fed so sure? You can go back, you can check the record. The episodes are out there. You can go back and check the record. What makes the Fed so sure that they're going to be able to, to bring inflation in with these interest rate hikes? And, and I was always skeptical that they'd be able to do it. Um, going here live, it says, return to serfdom. Uh, somebody here, Johnny says, Jake, I, I don't know. I know you don't give financial advice, but for those who are just like just like me, who don't actively trade just in market funds, we do not panic. We just keep calm. Yeah, sure. And there's a, there's a value to that too. You know, there's, there's a value to the fact I don't have to think about the market at all. Um, there's a value in that. And um, there's a value in focusing on it, presuming you do well at it. So you know, tr everything comes with its pluses and minuses. It's important to remember here. I uh, want to go to this Washington Examiner report here. This is a report that just got very little coverage, and it's, it's obvious why the mainstream media didn't pick this up. It says here, FBI insiders say white supremacy threat overblown as Biden opened summit about racists and extremists. This was out last week. Uh, the report from the Washington Examiner says President Biden will convene a forum Thursday at the White House aimed at confronting what civil rights groups, local officials, and academics say is an explosive rise in extremism and white supremacy that threatens the core of America's democracy. Civil rights groups? Like who? You mean, you mean like the civil rights group up in New York who's suing me, a Jew, under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, and my business partner, Jack Berkman, a Jew, claiming that somehow we are some sort of Klansmen? That kind of a civil rights group? Well, I'm sure they've got a lot to say, and it's worth about zero. It's worth less than zero. The United We Stand Summit builds on the administration's push to root out racially motivated domestic violent extremists. The threat sparked a sweeping strategy that included the creation of a specialized Justice Department unit to combat domestic terrorism. Mr. Biden will deliver the keynote address to highlight the administration's response to hate and put forward a shared vision for a more united America, officials say. Well, you know, I'm curious, has this strategy, this grand strategy, have they indicted any of those hundreds of incidents, uh, the perpetrators of any of those hundreds of incidents of uh, violent uh, black thugs up in New York beating the hell out of Hasidic Jews in Brooklyn? They had 101 uh, on-video incidents that took place in 2021, 101, if, I, if my memory serves. They had just one prosecution, just one arrest and prosecution that was a local arrest and prosecution uh, by the DA up there. Just one. So is Biden talking about those? The FBI haven't indicted any of those people, by the way. Spoiler alert, they don't care. They don't care about that. Let's get to the core of what this is. This is about creating a fantasy 
It's about pretending that the real threat to this country is Republicans, that the real threat to this country is the granny who stumbled into the Capitol building on January 6th waving a Trump flag. They want to pretend that the real threat to the security and the safety of the United States of America is somehow uh, violent Republican right-wing white supremacists who lurk in the corners ready to carry out violence. Do those people even exist? On a few particular days throughout any given year, those people exist. Yes, they exist and they are so rare, they are so seldom, that statistically speaking, they don't exist at all. You, you could probably fit all of the violent white supremacists in this country, quote unquote violent white supremacists, you could probably fit them all in a high school gymnasium. All of them in the entire country. Now, if you want to talk about you know, the black thugs that have assaulted Asians throughout the country, that have assaulted white people, that have assaulted Hasidic Jews in record numbers in New York City, beatings, rapes, robberies, a lot of times they just beat them for fun or kill them. Been many of these people beat to death. They're not prosecuted. They're not investigated for hate crimes. No referral is, is called in. None of that. How about in Waukesha? You'll recall earlier this year, Waukesha, Wisconsin, nobody talks about this anymore. The car ramming attack that took place, too brutal to almost even go back into. I did just, just don't even want to get started on that. But here's, here's the key, here's the key uh, phrase in this report. They, they, they put this in the third paragraph in the same font as everything else. We're talking here, of course, about the report, FBI insiders say white supremacy threat overblown as Biden opens summit about, it, about racists and extremists. <clears throat> so it says here, current and former FBI agents tell the Washington Times that the perceived threat has become overblown under the administration. They say, and this is important, they say that bureau analysts and top officials are pressuring FBI agents to create domestic terrorist cases and tag people as white supremacists to meet internal metrics. They say bureau analysts and top officials are pressuring FBI agents to create domestic terrorist cases and tag people as white supremacists to meet internal metrics. Well, you might ask yourself, how does the FBI create a domestic terrorist case? If an act of domestic terrorism takes place, if an act of domestic terrorism takes place, you pretty much know about it. It makes the news. In fact, it, it, it happens so rarely that you almost have to twist and make other things like somebody backing up their car that's kind of nutty and you know, maybe hits a couple people. You have to kind of make that into a terrorist incident when it doesn't resemble anything like, say, 9-11 or the Boston bombing. They're, they're so seldom, they're so rare that you have to kind of create them. You have to twist other incidents and, and, and pigeonhole them into being a, a white supremacist terror incident, don't you? Well, everyone knows that. So how does the FBI then create domestic terror cases. Well, we all know how they do it. Anybody who's paid any attention to some of these cases that play out, and it's hard because uh, the actual filings are often done under seal. The indictments are not covered by the media in their full text, but you will know what happens. What happens is that FBI agents lurk on the internet. They're all over Telegram. I have to kick them out of my Telegram chat from time to time, and they go out there trying to foment things. They leave very incendiary, uh, just obtuse uh, comments that don't make any sense in, say, a Telegram chat, like my own. I have to ban these people all the time. The other admins have to ban them all the time. And we know what they are. We know they're feds. And they'll say something like, we got to do something about this, like XYZ. I'm not going to repeat it. We got to blank, 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 do something about this Biden thing. 
That's what they say. And they're hoping that somebody replies to them and says, I agree. And on the off chance that somebody does, and that someone doesn't happen to be a different FBI agent from another field office, which by the way happens, well, then they engage with that person. It's a mentally ill person. It's a young kid who's maybe actually mentally retarded, mentally challenged, uh, perhaps autistic. And then they engage in a long, you know, undercover relationship with that person, posing as somebody who's like-minded. We saw the case in Texas, or rather in Michigan, there's another one in Texas, the case in Michigan where Michigan's probably the most corrupt state in the country, the, the most corrupt Democrat machine. It's not Chicago anymore, it's Michigan, where they go in and they sort of goad those guys into committing kidnapping, beg them, beg them, beg them. As soon as they finally say, oh, okay, I guess, boom, they arrest them. We busted a terrorist. We got him. Or they'll say, yeah, you know, you really should consider um, making, you really should consider uh, blowing that thing up, man. And they're like, well, okay, you know, I don't think so. Yeah, do it, do it, do it. Okay, meet me at the Target. I'll sell you uh, this device. And, oh, we got him. He was trying to buy a device to do X, Y, and Z. That's how they do this. It's sick. Uh, they target mentally ill people who were never going to become any kind of terrorist, any kind of killer. And those people end up in jail for the rest of their lives. Uh, they end up in, in deep trouble their lives destroyed, their families' lives destroyed, so that the FBI can create a metric because the actual crime, the actual terrorism just doesn't exist out there. So they have to create it. And this is covered in this report. It says, the demand for white supremacy, unquote, coming from FBI headquarters, vastly outstrips the supply of white supremacy. That's what they say, said one agent. So this is a special agent who spoke on the condition of anonymity. We have more people assigned to investigate white supremacists than we can actually find. Of course they do. The agent said those driving bureau policies, quote, have already determined that white supremacy is a problem and set agency-wide policy to elevate racially motivated domestic extremism cases as priorities. And by the way, you know, it's not just the indictments that happen. There, there's also the cases where, you know, somebody might be drunk, they're on Ambien, they make an off-color remark online, the FBI gets a search warrant for their house, they bust in, they just steal all their stuff. They don't end up maybe ever filing any charges, but they did break into your house. They seized all of your stuff. If you had any guns, those were certainly taking your computers. They're gone and they never give it back. That's civil forfeiture. They never give it back. It stays locked up forever. You have the looming threat of being indicted over your head, which is almost worse than actually being indicted because you don't know. I mean, am I going to have to hire a lawyer? Do I not? What do I do? It's, it's terrible. And, and it's, it's just the absolute thug tactics that, that exist in this country. It is the worst elements of what the KGB did, blended with what McCarthy did, the worst elements of all of that, combined together, and then given resources, and this is the important part, resources that the KGB could never dream of. I mean, the KGB could never dream of having these kind of resources. They could never dream of having everybody with a tracking device in their pocket all the time. The camera can be turned on, the microphone can be turned on. You know where everybody is all the time. The KGB could never dream of that, much less the budget and the staff and the gravitas in federal courtrooms that the FBI has and the TV shows. I mean, how many damn TV shows did the Soviet Union produce making KGB agents look like heroes? Probably some. I don't, I don't know of any, but probably some. But how many damn shows are the FBI just made out to be these superheroes in the U.S.? So it's all of that together, and it, and, it, and it creates 
uh, what is an out-of-control organization, an evil organization. The FBI, and now you hear even mainstream conservative commentators talking about this, the FBI has got to be broken up. It has got to be abolished. If there's a couple of guys that are really good at money laundering, they go over to Treasury. A couple of guys really good at you know, being a SWAT team, and they need to be called in, well, they can go to Homeland Security. But the, the idea that you, that you have this agency that's just run completely out of control is just crazy. It, it has just gone totally out of control. And this report lays it out well. Again, we're talking here about a report in the uh, Washington Examiner, and it is entitled, FBI Insiders Say White Supremacy Threat Overblown as Biden Open Summit About Racists and Extremists. And what's an extremist anyway? They never really define that, do they? They never define that at all. Uh, it never really comes out. I want to go to our uh, Q&A here in donation segment. Thanks to all of you for donating. I, I'm not sure... Um, if we have uh, the super chats going, maybe can some of you live in the chat tell me here on YouTube, are super chats working? I am going to get the multi-stream going so that we can stream on uh, Rumble and uh, other places simultaneously here. I'm going to get the, the, that technically set up. Uh, I, I, haven't, I didn't get around to it today because the power went out as I was preparing to start up this show. Uh, but we go here first to Ralph. I got to thank Ralph here. Big donation. Uh, he wrote in, he donates a, a very generous, uh, and you can tell me, you know, say what I donated, don't say, it's up to you. Uh, Ralph sent in a very generous $333 donation. He writes in, Jacob, keep up the great work. I'm loving the twice a week format and have been sending the links to my friends. That's all Ralph says. Ralph, thank you so much. And thank you for the $333 donation, Ralph. It, it, it helps us here. You know, I'm thinking today with this, with this, uh, power outage and the fact I was delayed, I said, man, it's really my fault. I should have had a battery backup system here. And all this stuff, when you actually add it up, the, the, the computer, the camera, the mixer, uh, the router would have to have it, I suppose, the lights, it actually uses up quite a bit of, of wattage. Uh, so I should have, though, a major battery backup system. I didn't have it. And uh, first time in two and a half years, the power goes out when it's uh, time to do the show. And it, particularly when you're on a tight schedule, you got to do it live. It's a, it's a major deal. So, um, you know, I, I need to get that set up. But, but these kind of donations keep the show going. It, it keeps it worth my time, of course, makes me take it more seriously. It feels like a job to me. It always has felt like a job. It's always felt like a duty. That's why I've never missed an episode. I don't miss. I don't uh, skip out on you guys. doesn't matter if it's, if it's Christmas. You know, if it, if it turns out that we've got a show on Christmas, we got a show on Thanksgiving Day. You're getting a show. It's not going to be, you know, a compilation or a special edition or some, you know, thing that was taped three weeks before with an interview of somebody that's evergreen. You're gonna get a you're gonna get a show. I mean, just about the only thing that could drag me away is a court date with all these Democrats coming after me that I cannot move. In which case I will adjust the timing of the show and and keep doing the show anyway. If I ever do disappear, by the way, I mean, if I don't post anywhere online ever for any more than say, I'm just going to say three days, you know that something's happened. Uh, maybe they've come after me in some way. That's an indication. I would say three days. Sometimes I will take a long weekend and I'll just not post anything online. If, I, if you don't see anything three days plus on my telegram that you got to be a little concerned. Um, go here to Cody now. Cody writes in, uh, he sends an $80 donation. He says uh, here, uh, Cody, thank you. First of all, thank you for the $80 donation. He says uh, here, uh, hey, Jacob, I've been watching the show since Election Day 2020. 
What do you think are the first three guns that everyone should buy? I'm going to go here to Cody. Um, somebody says, what email to send questions to? Uh, you send questions here to jacob at jacobwool.org or just go to jacobwool.org, go to the contact page uh, and put question for the show. Put question for the show in the subject line so that I see it. That's jacobwool.org slash contact. And uh, you, know, you can go there and send it in. Somebody says here, no super chats. I guess YouTube has, has taken that away for reasons unbeknownst to me. I'll, I'll look into that, but I'm not sure what the issue is. Um, but we go here back to Cody. Cody sent in an $80 donation. We thank him. And, I, and he asks here, I've been watching the show since Selection Day 2020. What do you think are the first three guns that everyone should buy? Well, here's my opinion, Cody. First gun everyone should buy is a very competent, high-quality, decent handgun, uh, whether that is Glock, whether that is uh, Smith & Wesson M&P, whether it's uh, SIG whether it's HK or FN, there's a lot of good guns out there, but something quality, something that's going to last, something that's going to be reliable, most importantly, uh, that's the first thing. Preferably, it's something that is maybe mid-sized, not ultra compact, but mid-sized, maybe like a Glock 19 so that you could carry it concealed and it could be a good bedside gun. That's the first gun that everyone should buy. Uh, of course, all of this is useless to you without the training. You have got to train. And when I say train, it doesn't just mean go to the range and plink around and, and blast off a few mags. You, you have to obviously get down the fundamentals, have somebody instruct you on the fundamentals, get good at that. But then from there, it comes down to, okay, how do I practice my draw stroke, dry fire practice, um, working under a timer, working under you know, conditions, find an outdoor range where you can work from different positions that are unusual positions to shoot from. So that you can you know feel what that's like uh, motor skills wise you, you, it feels different than you might expect really does uh, and so you have to train all of this is worthless to you without training so that's first second up I would say would be an AR15 basically uh, the the ARAK debate in this country has, has kind of been settled out based around just supply what's available uh, and what's available in terms of ammunition an AK would be just fine I, I've always loved AKs but um, Basically, these days, it means an AR-15, means a decent optic on it. Uh, get one, again, that's, that's from a reliable uh, maker, because everybody and their brother these days makes an AR-15. Everybody. I mean, you know, you, you can find there's hundreds and hundreds of brands that make AR-15s. The problem is some of these brands show up, they do one batch that's really high quality, the next batch isn't, and the guns just don't work. And then, you know, they go out of business within two years, and so there's no support. And a lot of times with those guns... You know, maybe it's a bolt carrier group. You can switch it out. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. But sometimes they're just so out of spec that you just have to start over, get rid of them. So I recommend you buy from a, from a credible brand. Uh, that means, you know, FN, Colt, Daniel Defense, uh, SIG makes some ARs. They also make these MCXs that they can't seem to really get right and produce in large numbers and provide support for. So maybe don't go that route. Don't go exotic. You can go that there later, but not, not for the first time around. Uh, Smith and Wesson makes good ARs. Uh, Daniel Defense, I'd say, is kind of the, the top of the heap for general consumer ARs. LWRC is up there. Uh, Knights Armament, but you know they uh, charge an arm and a leg, and they have this whole cult community that bids up the prices, and they don't produce enough. And and actually, when it comes to Knights Armament, I have actually heard in in recent years uh, quite a lot of issues with the guns that they sell into the civilian market. So that's a good place to go. Um, that's number two. Number three is, is where, you know, you start to have some flexibility, kind of depends on your environment, where you live, really. But I, I think as a number three, 
what I really like probably is a 12-gauge shotgun because you can do a lot with it. You can do everything from you know home defense, but you probably just use your AR for that, depending on your environment. Again, depends on your living situation, etc. But you do home defense, you can do uh, you put a deer slug in and you can go deer hunting. You can uh, you know put in certain loads and go pheasant hunting with the same gun. You can shoot sporting clays with it if you choose to. Uh, probably not an ideal gun if you're d- talking about a defensive shotgun, eighteen and a half inch barrel, probably seven plus one. It's not going to be necessarily the ideal pheasant hunting gun or the ideal sport clay gun, but you could press it into service for that. Gives you a lot of flexibility. But there are instances I could imagine where if you live in Wyoming and you have really large game that's around, then the third gun could be a 300 Winchester Magnum rifle. It could be a 4570 lever action, maybe probably more likely a 300 Win Mag just because different flexibility at longer ranges. But that's number three. You get to have some flexibility there, Cody, I would say. Thanks for the donation again. Uh, and, and thanks for all the donations that came in, by the way, without notes over the past week. You can uh, send in donations on Cash App, Real Jacob Will, as long as that's still up. I'm going to set up other means as well that uh, exist. Cash App is uh, Real Jacob Will. Cash App, Real Jacob Will. Uh, PayPal already banned. Uh, didn't take long uh, when you're a right winger. But that is out uh, now. I see a lot of commentary in here. It seems a lot of people uh, kind, of, kind of agree. Um, so that's my general take on that question there, Cody. And uh, thanks, guys, for chiming in in the live chat. Now, um, I want to go to this report out of New York. Uh, this is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, New York is, is stepping into the same left-wing George Soros uh, drug hellion trap that California stepped into. They want drugs to be pervasive. They want drugs out there on the street. They think it's wrong to prosecute people for drugs. It's racist. It's bad. It's whatever. This has been an ongoing campaign for the last 30 years. It began with George Soros backing the legalization of marijuana, saying, oh, it's benign. It's fun. It's cool, man. It's cool to smoke pot all day, according to these cultural figures. It's awesome. You won't grow hair on the palm of your hands. It's like, no, you won't grow hair on the palm of your hands. But what could happen might be a lot worse, quite frankly. And, and we've seen the depravity, we've seen the crime, we've seen the degeneracy, we've seen the cases of, of perfectly good people who uh, do this really high-grade marijuana one too many times or just once with the edible stuff. And there are many case reports like this, and they're permanently schizophrenic. They're permanently brain damaged. It's dangerous stuff. It really is. And it's also addictive. And I've had over the years a lot of people that have written into the show in the Q&A segments for the last coming up on two and a half years, I guess. And they'll tell me, you know, Jacob, I I watched your show and I was addicted to pot and I got over it. Thank God. And I'm so much more effective now. My life has gotten so much better. I didn't realize I was actually an addict and I was, and you shook me from that. And And I'm glad when I can. But this report is from the Wall Street Journal in New York. And it says here, marijuana retail licenses in the state of New York are going to be giving out first to convicted uh, drug criminals. It says here, marijuana retail licenses in New York are going first to those convicted of drug crimes. State's $200 million equity program is targeted at justice involved, a controversial, uh, targeted at the justice involved. So that's what they say. Now, if you're a criminal, uh, you are justice involved. If you're a violent thug who's uh, been in and out of jail, 
You aren't an inveterate criminal. You aren't a recidivist. No, you are a justice-involved person. You know, when you go in for the job interview, they run your background check and they say, wow, you've uh, you spent most of your adult life in jail, haven't you? You say, no, I've just been involved in justice. I'm justice-involved. That is literally the term that they are using in New York. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, they're saying that basically uh, to redress the negative impacts of the war on drugs, what they're going to do is give out uh, marijuana retail licenses, which by the way, it shouldn't be given out at all. Don't do this at all. They're going to give them out first to people convicted of drug crimes. Uh, here's more in the report. It says New York regulators want people who were affected by marijuana criminalization, by the way, which is going to be a lot of other kind of violent people because they picked up for robbery. They have a marijuana charge too. That's what the marijuana advocates don't tell you. You go and find me somebody today who's sitting in jail for possession of marijuana. I'm sure you can find one or two. You go and find somebody who spent 10 years in jail for simple possession of pot. Simple possession of pot. You, you won't find them. And this is the, one of the other big lies. People owned a little bit of grass and they're in jail for 10 years. No, they're not. They committed, let's say, a violent string of robberies. When they were finally picked up, they happened to be possessing some pot. They tacked that on too. They charged them with that too. Okay. And then they pretend that that person is in jail for the pot. It, it's just, it's a sick lie. It's, it's, it's a sick uh, uh, omission of the facts in an effort to lie and deceive, and it has been done by the left now for many years. And frankly, it's been done by some on the right. It says here, uh, New York isn't the first to try to give priority to people who, who have been previously arrested for drug crimes, many of whom are racial minorities when approving licenses for recre recreational marijuana sales. But advocates said those efforts have often been co-opted by large companies, including in California. To help people targeted in the program, New York has set up a $200 million fund from which licenses will, from which licensees will take out loans at an interest rate of about 14% to start cannabis stores. So Jesus, talk about a buried lead here in the story. They aren't just going to be giving out retail marijuana licenses. They aren't just going to be prioritizing uh, those licenses being given to drug criminals. They're also going to be loaning out money to these people to sell drugs, to sell pot, to push dope, uh, they have a $200 million taxpayer-funded uh, fund to do this at 14% interest. Now, you know what's going to happen next is they're going to say, well, you issued those loans to those uh, black drug criminals to start new drug businesses. That was predatory. You better forgive the loans because that was a predatory interest rate. 14% was predatory. That's going to be the next thing. You just get ready for that. That's, you can just You just write that down put that headline in the books, and we'll see that within the next several years. Guaranteed. It says the loans will be available to successful applicants for the first 150 retail licenses, which are earmarked for what New York calls justice-involved people who can show they or a close family member was convicted of a marijuana-related offense. So again, it doesn't matter. It's like, it's not, we found the one guy who was put in jail for 10 years for simply smoking a joint. You know, again, this is what they say happens. It doesn't. No. All they have to show is that there's some conviction someplace. Maybe it was even their cousin. Who the hell knows? For some drug-related offense or some marijuana-related offense, apparently. And the state will also at least equip the locations where those stores operate. Oh, really? So the state's going to lease and equip the location? So what? Is the state of New York going to be buying the bongs for these people? to smoke dope out of all day long in these locations? Are they going to be uh, uh, actually purchasing the 
uh, junky looking neon signs that hang up outside of these pot stores? Are they going to be putting up the bars on the windows and the cameras up? Because everyone knows these, these, these cannabis dispensaries are absolute hubs of crime. They're robbed relentlessly. Robberies, violent crimes, gang shootouts. Believe me, you don't want to live uh, next to a pot dispensary. You do not want a pot dispensary to move in around the corner from your home. Whatever you think about legalizing drugs, I guarantee you that. You do not want that. Because that's a whole world of degeneracy and crime that uh, you want no part of, I will guarantee you. So they're going to be leasing and equipping the locations even. This is just, uh, it's beyond belief. I mean, if you said that this would be the case 10 years ago, people would call you nuts. People would say, oh yeah, Mr. Time Traveler, yeah, get the hell out of here. That's crazy. Yeah, we talked about legalizing some pot or whatever, maybe decriminalizing, letting some people out of jail. You're telling me that New York's going to be actually leasing the locations and buying the equipment? Come on, get out of here. Nobody would believe that. And, and providing the money, some $200 million? And, and times, so you look at this, $200 million, 150 retail licenses, that's a lot of money per license, presumably. I mean, that means that they're going to be spending, uh, Jesus, I mean, what, $675,000 or something? Uh, or $750,000 per store? So these are, they're going to be giving these people $750,000 and leasing the location and equipping it with, I don't even know what equip means, but equipping it with whatever the equipment is for this, jars to put the, the, the dope in, I don't even know. Equity is not a thing for us. It's the thing, said Chris Alexander, executive director of the New York State Office of Cannabis Management. And of course, what we know is that these businesses are not competitive. Marijuana sales on the black market continue to be totally pervasive. Uh, The taxes on this make it not a competitive product. People buy it on the black market because of the taxes and the complication and the fact they don't want to get up and go to the store to buy pot. Potheads tend to be pretty lazy people. They want it delivered, turns out. What a complete and utter disaster. My God. Can't make this. I mean, I say it so many times, you can't make this stuff up. It's just like, maybe you can, but it's, it's so beyond the pale uh, that it, it just becomes an unbelievable uh, farce. So the only American who was given a sentence longer than five years for solely pot was Brittany Griner. Yeah, in Russia. That's right. That's right. Uh, it is totally ridiculous here. Uh, I want to go to this here. I, I like to sometimes cover uh, what's going on at the upper, upper echelons of society because it can sometimes be informative as to uh, what is going on throughout the rest of society. So we go here to this report. This is from the, the Wall Street Journal here. Uh, and the report is entitled, Will Someone Pay $250 Million to Live Atop the World's Tallest Condo Tower? Uh, the developer thinks so. Uh, so this is uh, going into here what's taking place in New York City right now. When construction topped out at New York Central Park Tower, the Billionaire's Row Mega Tower set a record for the world's tallest residential condominium at 1,550 square feet high, uh, 1,550 feet high. Uh, now developer Gary Bennett is gunning for yet another record, aiming to achieve the country's highest ever home sale price. He's got a condo, for those of you listening, it's just an absolutely uh, stunning thing. I mean, it looks uh, like a something you'd, you'd, you'd sort of make up or computer generate in a movie. I mean, and it is, in this case, computer generated. Construction is not finished. Huge, winding, uh, wild staircase. If you're listening, it might be worth a look. This is, again, in the Wall Street Journal, 
Just look up Wall Street Journal, $250 million condo, and you'll, you'll find this if you care to see the pictures for those of you listening. Uh, those who are watching live can see what I'm talking about. Enormous staircase, three stories high, the very top of this, and they want to charge $250 million for it. Uh, the agent on it is this Ryan Serhant. He's uh, become one of these you know, celebrity agents. He says here, uh, the nine-figure club is a special club, and that club is now looking to own nine-figure real estate, said listing agent Ryan Serhant. It's a new paradigm now. The uber-wealthy are looking for places to diversify assets, and real estate has become one of the most popular and sought-after mega-assets. The levels have exploded. Of course, when you own the most expensive house, uh, you have a very limited kind of liquidity that's available. But actually, owning a $250 million condo, this sounds crazy, it might have more liquidity than owning an $80 million condo because it is the most expensive one. It is at the top. It then has a certain uh, branding that is of interest to more billionaires who would be the same people that would shop for, say, the $80 million condo. More of them might be interested in this just because it's at the top. Uh, Located on 57th Street between 7th Avenue and Broadway, Central Park Tower launched sales in October 2018. Construction on the 179-unit building began in 2014 and was completed earlier this year. Mr. Barnett said he wanted to wait for construction on the tower to complete before marketing the penthouse, which spans the 129th through 131st floors and measures more than 17,500 square feet. The seven-bedroom home has a ceiling heights of up to 30 feet and a winding sculptural staircase connecting the floors, Mr. Mr. Sirhan said. The uppermost floor is currently configured as a private ballroom or entertainment space. Uh, the place, the piece de resistance, a uh, private, roughly 1,400 square foot terrace with views of the city, Central Park, and the Hudson and East Rivers. I mean, I mean no doubt this is a, a stunning uh, place, a stunning accomplishment. I, I, I am happy that people are building these sort of things. It's aspirational. I like the idea, really. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't want to live there full time. You have to realize that nobody who, the people who buy these places, and this is what I learned. I, I lived in a, in a high-rise uh, condo in the D.C. area, in one of the highest high-rise condos, um, maybe the highest, actually, come to think of it, uh, until very recently. And uh, the, most people don't live there full-time. They, a lot of people kind of use it like a, uh, like a hotel. They're rich. They want to come to town. They don't want to have to do the check-in and all this stuff. They have their clothes already there. They have, you know plates and dishes and they have stuff already there and they, they just show up and they use it kind of like a long stay hotel when they're in town or even not a long stay hotel. And so most of this building I lived in was was unoccupied. I mean, if you looked at like 8 p.m. at night, most of the lights were off. Uh, and then the other side of that is a lot of these people are constantly doing construction. So you have jackhammers going off. That was a challenge trying to do the show with the constant jackhammering and people are bored. They always want to replace their floors and oh my God, I want to do the new hardwood. And it's just... Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a strange kind of crowd. It, it, these aren't the people that, you know, you normally know. And, and they're also not, you know, neighborly people. They're, they're not social, which is strange because you'd think, you know, they could live in a house on their own, but they live in a building with, you know, their neighbor six feet away from them or closer. Um, you know, maybe they want the collegial vibe or something, but, but they don't. Um, a lot of them are very reclusive, really. Up in the high towers, they they, they don't speak to you. They, you know, you, you might bump into them in the hallway, but they say two words. 
Um, it's it's a strange it's a strange thing. It's it's um it's it's a strange phenomenon. But but that's something to understand about these people and the people that live in these towers. Maybe some of you can chime in in the in the live chat here or send in uh, notes uh, at jacobwell.org/contact. Uh, you don't have to renovate uh, for four years to create your dream home. It's been built for you. So traditionally, you know, people would buy three or four condos, combine them together. Somebody did that in the building I was in. It was an epic construction project. Um, so, you know, the other part about this, though, being as high as this one is, I didn't have this problem at all, but like 432 Park Avenue is a famous uh, tower in New York City. It's something to look at. It's just this this very simplified kind of art deco uh, rectangular building, very simplified, 432 Park Ave. Goes straight up, very tall. And if you live above a certain floor, it rocks back and forth. So some people bought these condos there for millions of dollars. I mean, some of these condos go for $30 million in this building. And it rocks back and forth and they can't they can't be in their condos because they get seasick. It 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 sways in the wind like 12 feet back and forth if you're on certain levels or more, uh, because it's so high up and it, and it has to have some give or else it would snap. Boy, oh boy, I would not like that. I would not. Uh, like to be seasick uh, when I'm just sitting in my bed or uh, sitting on my sofa. My God, would that be unsettling? And I guess it's not going to break or whatever. But Jesus, the other part is the elevators. So you, you know, I got sick of the elevators just going down, you know, a few tens of floors. But when you're talking about going 130 floors down when you want to go out to the store, um, even if you have your own private elevator, and even if it's a fast elevator, it's it's a weight. God forbid you don't, and you have to wait for the elevator to come. Oh my God, you're you're spending a lot of time in the hallway, sitting around, waiting around. It's um, there are downsides to all this. I mean, overall, of course, there's a lot of upsides too. The the views are just spectacular, and I had a spectacular view myself. But man, at this place, it's really something. Uh, he emphasized that the building's height makes the penthouse unique in the world. Now they talk about some of these other uh, deals that have gone down recently. This is really what's maybe most interesting uh, that leads them to even produce a building like this. Says here, uh, while units have steadily closed for record sums at the Vornado building, hedge fund billionaire Daniel Ock recently sold his unit there for $188 million, roughly double what he paid about two years earlier. So some people do make a profit in these uh, in these units. A lot of people have lost money too, and they buy these things and they put them all together. It's a limited market. It's not just the right time, just the right buyers not around, and they end up taking a ten or twenty million dollar bath. I think a lot of times if you have this kind of money, you don't really particularly care. But Daniel Ock, famously starting the hedge fund uh, Ock Ziff, which is now rebranded to, uh, what is it called? It's not, um, it's like shape, not shapeshifter capital, but it's some, some you know, strange name. Uh, but uh, it's run by a very young guy. And, um, but Ock Ziff, uh, he, he started that fund. He's kind of out of there now. I think he's retired, but he sold his unit there for 100 and 88 million, doubling his money in two years. That, that's pretty remarkable. Um, another unit just closed for $43 million, but that was 32.5% off its asking price. Most expensive sale in the building uh, that appeared in public records so far was $50 million, uh, $50 million deal for a 53rd floor unit. This is, this is an echelon of, of society, folks, that, um, man. Now, it's interesting because they show off like the lobby of this building with all these sofas and stuff. And they show off like the 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 common areas and everything, and these you know decks and these lounges and all of this. And I think to myself, man, to net to be able to network there, that would really be something. But um, really, it, it's not because there's nobody there. And I've been into some of these towers, even in New York. And you you say, man, I want to go, you know, see. I wonder who's there. There must be some pretty rich uh, 
rarefied, interesting folks. There's nobody. It's just uh, they're not. When you're in a unit like that, I, I guess you don't socialize much. Um, not the place, not the time. I don't know, but it's not my not my cup of tea. Uh, really, I, I prefer to have some some space and some uh, some land and uh, a little bit of room, a little bit of breathing room at least. Uh, still close to town, but uh, have a little bit of room. This person says I wouldn't feel comfortable all the way up there in NYC. You don't know which uh, Afghans Biden led in. Well, that's that's the other part too. My God, right? You better have a. Uh, I don't know. Would you have a parachute? Uh, could you parachute down? Is there enough room? I guess you'd have to be pretty well practiced to do a. It would really amount to base jumping, right? You'd have to be pretty well practiced to do a jump like that and to not, you know, die in the process, get hung up on something. I would want one if I were up that high. And this person says lived in a high rise, tens of thousands. This is uh, in the uh, live chat here on YouTube. He said lived in a high rise, tens of thousands, uh, tens of stories. If you leave your condo at the top of the hour, the elevator stops every floor to let people heading out. Well, yeah, there you go. It's uh, yeah, it's frustrating. You know, it's one of those things. Um, Christian says here, I don't know why anyone would want to live in New York having that sort of money. So many better places. And and again, they don't really live there. I don't think for the most part, it, they use it like a like a hotel. They 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 own it as an asset. It's a place to park cash. Much of that market, by the way, you hear about these transactions with names you know like Daniel Locke much of this money when you look at who really owns these these units and public records it's these anonymous LLCs that are basically owned by dubious people who come from overseas they have a ton of cash that maybe they just ripped off from the central bank of Moldova or uh they they you know stole and embezzled from their company in China or whatever they they park it in this piece of real estate they set aside some money in trust to pay the property taxes for a number of years, even if it doesn't go up in value. Now they've got all this cash. It's, it's been given off to someone else. Now they just own that, the house. Nobody's going to come after that anytime soon. An LLC owns it. They pay their property taxes. And they take big loans out against the property. And those are tax-free, so they don't have to come onto the radar of the IRS. And uh, that's how they live. So if you look at who owns most of the mega mansions in Beverly Hills, who owns most of these, you know, 10, 20, 30 plus million dollar units in New York City, they are owned for the purpose of being uh, property for which you can take out loans against. And almost that exclusively with the idea that this is a primetime plot of real estate. It's not like the you know, area is going to go down 70% and never come back like you know, a piece of real estate in Riverside County, California or something. And that's the idea. That's how they do this. Uh, so that was interesting. Another report out about billionaires last week. I'm going to go over this quickly here because we're, we're running long. But uh, New York Times report came out. It said, uh, billionaire no more. Did you see this? Billionaire no more. Uh, this is a report from the New York Times' David Gellis. I, I don't even want to call it a report. It's a gushing piece. Uh, billionaire no more. Patagonia founder gives away the company. A half century after founding the outdoor apparel maker, he writes, uh, Patagonia, Yvonne Chunaud, bizarre name, uh, the eccentric rock climber who became a reluctant billionaire with his unconventional spin on capitalism, has given away the company. Rather than selling the company or taking it public, uh, Mr. Chunaud and his wife, their two adult children, have transferred their ownership of Patagonia, valued at $3 billion, to a specially designed trust and a nonprofit organization that were created to preserve the company's independence and ensure that all of its profits, some $100 million per year, are used to combat climate change and protect undeveloped land around the globe. 
So the, the first thing I thought with this immediately upon reading it is, this is some kind of tax strategy. It's some sort of tax scam, uh, tax avoidance scheme, because he's 83. And uh, this has nothing to do with being a true believer in the climate change hoax, or even at best, you know, using it to have his kids hang out with celebrities and throw galas for the next 50 years to have Leonardo DiCaprio come speak. No, this is a tax avoidance scheme. And, and sure enough, you know, New York Times does their, their glowing report, makes it into New York Times Magazine. I figure it's just a tax scheme. I wasn't even sure whether I was going to talk about it, but like immediately after seeing the report, thinking that report comes out of Bloomberg confirming my suspicions. Uh, this report from Bloomberg, uh, a much better report. This is from uh, Devin Pendleton and Ben Steverman at uh, Bloomberg. It's entitled "A Patagonia Billionaire Who Gave Up Company Skirts Seven Hundred Million Dollar Tax Hit." Founder Yvonne Chouinard. Uh, structured the transfer of his firm in a way that keeps control within the family and avoids taxes. Well, of course, you know, this guy isn't a reluctant billionaire. He doesn't want to raise taxes on the rich and uh, do all of Bernie Sanders' uh, commitments to implement socialism and stop climate change and all these other slogans that these people virtue signal about. He is not a reluctant billionaire at all. If he were, all he'd have to do is just give away all his money. How much more does he need? He's 83. No, no, no. He wants to be a billionaire. He wants to make sure that his progeny, his children, their children, the children after them will never have to work again. They will be billionaires. And it, it details it precisely how he does that here. Patagonia founder uh, Yvonne Chenard described his decision to give away the outdoor apparel maker as a last-ditch effort to do all he could to protect the planet. He's with the planet, folks. Who is he with? What side's he on? The planet. Like, what the hell does that even mean? God only knows. But even that was a lie. Even that already disingenuous, bizarro claim was a lie. Uh, it says here the deal is structured in a way that also brings the billionaire other perks by letting him and his family keep control of Patagonia while shielding them from tax bills that could have totaled hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, by donating most of the company, which is valued at $3 billion, according to the New York Times, Chenard is uh, at the fore of a small but growing movement among the ultra wealthy to use nonprofits to exert political influence long past their lifetimes. Now, I, it's not a small contingent that uses nonprofits to avoid taxes, but to exert political influence past their lifetimes, maybe perhaps it is a smaller group. Uh, he transferred 98% of Patagonia shares to Holdfast Collective, a nonprofit that will deploy its roughly 100 million in annual profits to fighting the environmental crisis and defending nature. Uh, whatever that means, kind of like Joe Biden's cancer nonprofit, spent all the money on administrative and salaries, spent zero on giving out any grants for cancer research. That was a report came out just recently. So I don't, I don't want to go into all the structure here. For those of you listening, it won't make any sense anyway. You can check out this report and uh, draw out these charts if you're interested. But the bottom line is that uh, this was a massive tax avoidance strategy using a complex web of nonprofit entities, both both 501c3, 501c4. And it is intended, perhaps, precisely for what the opposite of the New York Times said it was intended for, which is uh, being a reluctant billionaire, giving it away, gave away nothing, gave away nothing. This was a restructuring strategy. And you know, if you're going to do this, you'd think if you're going to do some big, and again, it's, it's all legal. I mean, th these deals are, are all structured by the biggest uh, tax law and accounting firms in the world. It's, it's not illegal, not, not whatsoever. But you think if you're going to do this, it is sleazy in a sense. It is 
and not even sleazy. In fact, I say give less money. You give give the the minimum tax U.S. government as you can. But it's disingenuous from where these people sit while they advocate for higher taxes, while they advocate for eliminating billionaires and all of this other nonsense. It's disingenuous to their own beliefs. It's hypocritical to their own beliefs. And I would think if you're going to do that, you just do it and you just shut up. And whatever happens when you die happens. You keep it all quiet. You exercise the privilege that your attorneys and accountants owe to you. And uh, you, you, you just handle it that way. But no, he actually brags about it. In fights in New York Times over, they take these, these pictures of him and uh, they write this, this magazine piece and it took front and center trying to look like some kind of hero for the planet and all of this so that his obituary says he gave it all away. Oh my God, this, this, this selfless hero. But no, it was just about making sure that there'd be a few hundred million dollars less, or maybe more than a few hundred dollars, fewer dollars that is paid to the IRS upon his death because of income taxes owed and estate taxes and other various taxes uh, that might be owed. Uh, very typical. Happens all the time. Uh, it's what these people do. And uh, so that's what this Patagonia founder w- was doing. And uh, again, I, I really, I, I'm almost thinking I should keep this for the next show. My voice is given out here, but we're going to do it. We're going to press on here. Uh, this is a new report out about congressional insider trading. Have you seen this out? Uh, new York Times did a decent job of this report. Uh, here's a tweet from Graham Stephan talking about it. Here you go. Uh, the New York Times basically did a, a review of these trades that Congress does. Now, just recently, you could get these online. Previously, if you wanted to get these trades, you had to go to the Library of Congress. You had to go to the basement. You, had, you could not bring your phone or any electronic device. You could review the trading records, and you could bring a pencil and paper. You could not make copies. You could not bring any, any phones to take pictures, copiers, nothing. They wouldn't give you a copy. They wouldn't print you out a copy. So it's very hard to do research previously. Now the disclosures come out uh, in a way that they can be searched online. A lot more coverage of them now than you've ever seen going back to you know, 2011, 12, when they rolled out the Stock Act and all this. What the New York Times found is that 44 of the 50 members of Congress who were most active in the markets traded in securities for companies which their committee assignments could give some degree of knowledge or influence. Okay, well, so the most active traders on Capitol Hill are the ones who are moving the market, of course. The analysis also shows that 13 lawmakers or immediate family members had traded shares of companies that are under investigation or were under investigation by their committees uh, between 2019 and 2021. They were trading the stock of companies they were supposed to monitor. That's what they were doing. Uh, For example, a few examples here. Alan Lowenthal, a Democrat from California, he sold Boeing shares on March 5th, 2020, one day before a House committee on which he sits released damaging findings about the company's handling of its 737 MAX jet. Uh, Bob Gibbs, uh, represented from Ohio, working on uh, the House Oversight Committee, reported buying, I think he's a Republican, reported buying shares of the pharmaceutical company ABV in 2020-2021, while he was on a committee investigating ABV and five rivals over high drug prices. Uh, Representative uh, John Rose from Tennessee sold between 100 and 250,000 worth of Wells Fargo stock in 2019, a few months before that committee issued a sharply critical report on Wells Fargo that coincided with a steep decline in the bank's share price. Uh, Tuberville, uh, he's a, out of uh, Alabama, on the Senate uh, Committee uh, for Healthcare. Well, he traded shares in 
major pharmaceutical and medical services companies. He also sold put options on Microsoft less than two weeks before the software company lost a $10 billion contract with the Defense Department. Well, okay, he sold, they say he sold put options. So that would have meant he, that, that he lost money and, and possibly lost quite a bit of money. So in his case, it didn't work out. If he sold put options on Microsoft uh, less than two weeks before the software company lost a $10 billion contract with the Defense Department, that would not um, yield profits. Maybe they got some wording in that incorrect. Maybe he bought put options or something. Maybe he, he bought a put spread. Who, who knows? Um, so they talk about this here. It's just absolutely pervasive. Uh, they talk about uh, Ro Khanna, that uh, Indian congressman out of Silicon Valley. He goes on Tucker every now and again. He was one of the most active traders of, of all. I mean, he. Uh, they talk here about how he and his wife, uh, Ritu uh, Aju Khanna, and she's the daughter of Monte Aju, who is the founder of a successful automotive equipment company, it reported that his wife and children, who are young and whose assets are traded by a trust, so no, it wasn't his children trading, uh, but they hide it with the children through a trust, uh, they bought or sold securities at least 10,000 500 times in a three-year period, the time studied. Mr. Khanna said in an interview that he never traded himself and was uninvolved in the trading of his family members' assets. Mr. Khanna said he favored a complete ban on trading by members, but for family members, he said that he thought a highly diversified trust that is managed by an outsider, uh, he said the arrangement used by his wife and children was an ethical solution. Why do they insert uh, like these these sort of uh, explanations within a quote. It's very bizarre. New York Times has been doing that a lot lately. If someone's uh, coming into a marriage with independent resources, I think it's the appropriate way to deal with the conflict, he said. So it's just, it's just out of control. 10,500 trades. When does he have time for anything else? He's calling up, hey, use, uh, use uh, uh, Jimmy's account. Uh, yeah, I know he's only four, but uh, trade Microsoft fast. And they're doing options trades and they're doing spreads and they're trading the vol and they're they're doing all kinds of uh, advanced trading. I mean, that's like a trading operation. 10,500 trades he called in. He says he didn't call them in. He, of course he did in a three-year period. That's quite a lot. I mean, that's oh, approximately what? 10 trades a day, every day of the year. And of course, you figure the market's only open 250, 252 days a year, more than 10 trades a day, more like um, approaching 20 trades per day, per day. Think about that. 20 trades per day. That's, uh, whoa. I mean, I almost think even if you had inside information, that seems like it's almost like, you know, too active. Uh, it seems too active even for an insider trader. It's unbelievable. Um, it's just, it's just unreal. I mean, it's, it's just goes on and on and on, uh, you know, the, this, this kind of insider trading, but what maybe speaks louder than anything else is the performance. And for those of you listening on the podcast, you can't see this, but you look at the performance of these people uh, versus the S&P 500 index. And I mean, they are performing, they're, they're outperforming the index massively, in some cases doubling and tripling the S&P 500, quadrupling, 5x the S&P. Nancy Pelosi's right up there near the top. Uh, a bunch of Republicans, actually, the Republicans are in the very top ranks. I think one, two, three, four, five, top five are all Republicans. Another, I mean, so it's, it's both sides of the aisle. It happens constantly. Of course, if you work within other areas of federal government that concern securities, if you worked for the SEC, for example, you can't trade any individual equities. Neither can your immediate family if you work for SEC. None. You can't actively trade the indexes. You have to hold, if you were to buy SPY, you'd have to hold it for at least 90 days. 
under the last time I checked in on SEC internal regulations. I think CNBC has a 90-day policy for their employees. If they buy, they have to hold it for 90 days. Many of their employees voluntarily declined trading any individual stocks at all just to prevent the accusation that they tried to move something in their favor or something like that. So yeah, there, there is real insider trading in Congress. It's more vast than even sounds believable. I mean, 20 trades a day, some of these people are doing. They're doing it in the names of their young children. Five, six-year-old children are trading all day long in trusts. It's just unreal. And it happens constantly. Uh, you have very few media outlets, very few people who are prepared to do any research about it. And of course, if anything is to be done about it, laws to be passed or something, that would have to be, of course, passed by Congress. And after all, they aren't very likely to shut down their profitable enterprise. The Stock Act limited it to some degree. It used to be basically completely legal for them to insider trade. The Stock Act said, no, it's not legal. There have been a few indictments, convictions, SEC investigations here and there. You remember Richard Burr was investigated by the SEC, ultimately cleared, head of the, uh, the Senate Intel Committee. This happens a lot. And uh, it isn't, I'm going to be honest with you, it's not something that comes up a lot in Washington, D.C. You know, it's not something where people say, hey, does Congressman so-and-so know about this or that? It doesn't really happen. Because if you're a lobbyist, you, you usually know about these reports anyway, uh, whether it's a committee report or something to some degree. Um, some of our clients will you know, task us with giving them information. Some of our clients are, are capital markets clients. Now, we aren't giving them material non-public information. We aren't involved in insider trading conspiracies, obviously, but we have certain uh, intuition, uh, certain intel that we can glean, which is available to the public, uh, that we can provide them and how they use it. I don't necessarily even know. Um, it's not dispositive, usually one way or another on some trade. Uh, but you see here, I mean, it, it, these people are, are outperforming the S&P 500. They're outperforming hedge funds. They're outperforming uh, people who, like Steve Cohen at his family office, you would just assume might be insider trading. So uh, the performance really says it all. And, and obviously, there's not even enough FBI resources to track down all of this. When people are investigated for it, they tend to be pretty much exclusively Republicans. wonder how that works. But uh, wanted to bring that to you at long show today, uh, really a, a feature length episode here. I thank you all for joining me on today's episode of The Jacob Wolf Show. We will be back on Thursday uh, at 2 p.m. Apologize for the power outage here that's brought us long. We'll be back Thursday, 2 p.m. live on YouTube. We should be, we should be up live on, on, on Rumble as well. Uh, or of course, many of you listen on podcast apps everywhere. Share the links, uh, leave a comment, uh, give us a like, whatever you're doing on whichever app you're listening to. Send in your questions for the next episode, jacobwell.org slash contact. You can donate, of course, cash app, Real Jacob Wall. It's been uh, great to have you. Wonderful to have you again. I thank you all for the donations, for your contributions to the show, for your live chats. We are going to uh, really take this show to wonderful places, continuously improving, continuously bringing you new facts, new analysis. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll see you on Thursday on The Jacob Wolf Show.